Okay, everybody, good evening. Uh, welcome. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, uh, and uh, good to be I'm in game here. I'm on Crick Hollow server today, and in the book, we are plowing our way through chapter eight. We must be, we must be to the fourth or fifth paragraph by now. Um, uh, so today we're going to, having just said goodbye to Goldberry, uh, we are now going to uh, continue on the path into the Barrow Down and watch them get trapped and fall asleep again. So that'll be exciting. Um, before uh, we start that, a couple quick announcements. Uh, first, I wanted to go over the schedule a little bit because uh, we have a, a little disruption coming up. So next week, I'm going to be away. Uh, so no class next week. So uh, we will not meet next week, but I will be back the week after. So uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings is a little bit lucky because it's a, since it's on Tuesday night, uh, there's no real conflict with American Thanksgiving. Um, other things that I'm doing have two weeks off for that reason. So um, we're going to be... Uh, so we will meet on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, um, and uh, uh, and we should be able to to, to continue after that uh, through December. So um, so just so no class next week, and then we'll be back the week after that. So uh, just to and I'll try to remember to remind folks of that at the end of class as well. Um, another announcement. Mythmoot 5 is coming. Registration for Mythmoot 5 for our, our next year's Mythmoot, which will be in June from the 21st to the 24th of June down in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, the registration is going to be opening for that uh, sometime here in the next couple days. Uh, it is uh, very soon. I'm super excited about this. Uh, we're going to have a couple great Tolkien scholars coming. John Garth, uh, author of Tolkien and the Great War, is going to be uh, uh, flying over. Uh, from England uh, to, to, to come and talk for that. And also Doug Anderson, uh, the, the author of The Annotated Hobbit, one of the greatest uh, textual, you know, modern te uh, textual scholars of J.R.R. Tolkien in the modern world. He is uh, uh, just an incredible resource of information. Uh, that man has forgotten more about 20th century science fiction and fantasy than I will ever know. Um, uh, it's... Uh, it's fantastic. So, um, so Douglas Anderson and John Garth are coming, and also Mark Ockrand, who is the uh, the developer, the inventor and developer of the Klingon language. He's the guy who wrote the book on the Klingon language for Star Trek. Uh, so you come and uh, come and you get to meet Mark Ockrand and take some Klingon lessons, which I am super looking forward to. Um, I'm hoping to uh, I'm hoping to learn some good. Uh, sort of pejorative phrases uh, and. Uh, um, you know, uh, expletives basically in Klingon. I, I, I want to be able to swear in Klingon better because it just seems like if there's a language that w would be like satisfying to uh, swear in, you would think it would be Klingon, right? So, um, anyway, no, I'm serious. That because uh, just you know, did, some some nice um, uh, 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 friendly expressions in Klingon. Really, in fact, uh, you could probably say. Um, uh, you know, I think you're a wonderful person in Klingon, and it would still sound like a curse. So uh, I love it. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, I'm really looking forward to learning some more useful Klingon phrases uh, at Mythmood 5. Um, so I hope um, 
I hope that you guys will be, some of you will be able to join us. I was so great to meet several of you uh, last year for the first time at Mythmoot, uh, and I hope that uh, that uh, more of you guys will be able to make it. So it's the registration is going to be open for months yet, but we have early bird pricing on that, which is going to be opening up here uh, as soon as we start in the next couple of days. So wanted to let you know uh, about that that that's uh, that that's going to be happening. It's going to be really really fun. Um, so, um, yeah, Brandon, exactly. Shakespeare is best in the original Klingon. That was one of my favorite lines uh, from Star Trek for, for a long time, uh, actually, yeah. Um, I liked it better in the original. It's, it's better in the original Klingon. Um, <laughs> anyway, it still might be one of my favorite lines from The Next Generation, but um, anyway. Uh, okay. Let's see. Was there another announcement? I don't think so. I don't think there's... Oh. Yeah, no, I don't think there's another announcement. Okay. All right. Um, so let's... Um, uh, let's continue on. So uh, tonight, the class is called Trapped Again. Uh, because uh, um, uh, we're... Um, uh, going to watch them, of course, get trapped again. And of course, the parallels are quite striking, right? We were looking at the sort of the structure of these chapters uh, last time, thinking about the sort of the three Tom Bombadil chapters, right? With the house of Tom Bombadil in the middle, the old forest on the one side, and the Barrow Duns on the other side, Tom Bombadil rescuing them on either end of the chapter that they spend in his house. But it's not just that that general structure holds true, right? It is, um, uh, it is that they... Um, uh, the, the, the parallels to the scenes are quite interesting, right? Once again, they're going to be sort of lured into a spot and then put to sleep. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch that unfold. I hope that we will get there tonight. My goal for tonight is to get to, uh, uh, to get hope at least that they're falling asleep. Maybe even they're getting snagged by a barrow white. So we'll see about that. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, one before we start though one uh, uh, one comment and this comment uh, from the from the there, there were a couple of really good comments on the uh, uh, the discussion board this week some of them I'm saving uh, still for a little bit but um, one this is kind of hitting the way back machine way back to chapter one um, Sharon Powell posted this about Angelica's mirror you'll remember Angelica Baggins who got a convex mirror from Bilbo and we were kind of talking about that and the significance of that. Um, and I just wanted to post this, even though it was a, it was for for you know from that passage a long time ago. But I thought that Sharon's reading of this was the best that I that I've ever seen, and certainly better than anything I've ever thought. Uh, so I was pretty excited about it. Uh, Sharon says, "I was at my local nursery recently and noticed that they have gazing balls, which are basically convex mirrors completed as a sphere. They are used in a beautiful, well-proportioned garden to allow the viewer to sit in one spot and see the whole garden at once." The gazing ball allows you to see more of the scene than even your peripheral vision would normally allow. Similarly, convex mirrors were used in Victorian times to appreciate a beautiful, well-proportioned, and well-designed room, allowing one to take in the whole view all at once. Convex mirrors are also currently used as rear-view mirrors and side-view mirrors in cars to give a wider-than-normal view. Yes, objects are closer than they appear, but the ability to see those objects may save your life. I suggest that the purpose of giving the convex mirror to Angelica is to encourage her to see not just herself, but the world and the people around her. The point is not that the vision is distorted, but that the mirror gives a very wide-angle view of the world. 
I love that reading. Um, because remember that the commentary on it, right, the explanation given in the text for why she's being given a convex mirror uh, is that she obviously thought her face shapely, right? Which seems, on the one hand, kind of hard to understand or or maybe too easy to understand in a sense, right? It's like, okay, so she thinks she thinks her face you know, she, 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 she thinks she's, she's attractive, right? So you gave her a mirror. Well, I mean, I, she might like a mirror, right? Cause I mean, if she likes to look at herself, but it, there, 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 there seems to be, there, there needs to be some joke or some point to it. Right. So what's, what's the joke or point? That is the best point I've ever heard argued for, for the convex mirror. Right. Because, yes, you can see yourself. So she may be tempted to look into it. Right. In order to see her own reflection. But when she does, what will she see? She'll see herself small and she'll see all the world around her. Right. So encouraging her to pay attention to more than just herself. I think that's uh, that's really, really neat. Right. Um, uh, So I that's that's as I said, this is this was my favorite uh, my favorite reading of the convex mirror. Uh, and, uh, certainly I think the one that I'm going to be adopting myself in my future readings of that chapter. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was really cool. Um, okay. All right. Um, let us move on. So we've said goodbye to Goldberry. Their way wound along the floor of the hollow, and round the green feet of a steep hill into another deeper and broader valley, and then over the shoulders of further hills, and down their long limbs, and up their smooth sides again, up on to the new hilltops, and down into new valleys. There was no tree, nor any visible water. It was a country of grass and short, springy turf, silent except for the whisper of air over the edges of the land, and high, lonely cries of strange birds. As they journeyed, the sun mounted and grew hot. Each time they climbed a ridge, the breeze seemed to have grown less. When they caught a glimpse of the country westward, the distant forest seemed to be smoking, as if the fallen rain was steaming up again from leaf and root and mold. A shadow now lay round the edge of sight, a dark haze above which the upper sky was like a blue cap, hot and heavy. All right. Um... So first, the description of the terrain that they're going through, right? Um, There was no tree nor any visible water, right? So one thing that's plainly emphasized is the difference, right? They are not, you know, they've, the, the, the land that they're going through is now completely different from the land that they were going to before Tom's house, right? They had found their way down to the Withywindle Valley. Um, so not just a river valley, but a river valley full of willow trees. And of course, if you know willow trees, uh, they always grow uh, in wetlands, right? And uh, and on the edges of rivers and lakes and things. You know, they, they love um, flat, very watery land. So we're, there, there's, there's no risk of willows here, right? In fact, there are no trees at all. So on the one hand, the area that they're going into is like the complete opposite of the land that they've been in. No trees, not only no willows, no trees of any kind, grass and short springy turf. Um, and Tony, that's a really good question. Uh, Tony's asking when the narrator says strange birds, does he mean weird or just unfamiliar? I assume unfamiliar, um, strange to them, 
Probably. I mean, presumably they're not like freakish, like Dr. Seuss birds or something like that. Um, uh, but, um, but, but, but anyway, strange, strange to them. Um, in other words, one of the things that I think that we can, that that conveys is that again, it's not just they're moving into a, a sort of a type of land, right? Into a kind of geography, which is different from where they've been going through but different from what they're used to, right? The birds here are strange because they don't... The, the hobbits have never really traveled in land of this kind. They've never really gone into 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 highlands like this, going up and over downs uh, as they are around the edges of the Barrow Downs here. Um, so... So yeah, Tony, it is interesting though that that note of strangeness is is sort of sounded in that in the middle of this paragraph, right? The high lonely cries of strange birds. Um, the high lonely, uh, uh, the high lonely cries already sets a kind of tone for it, right? There's something already eerie about it, um, slightly unnerving, um, and uh, and the strangeness. Yeah, exactly. Catriona, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? It's not quite exactly. It's not like uh, the difference between Kansas and Oz, quite. But but yes, they're not they're not in familiar uh, territory anymore. Um, again, it's different. It's nicely different from the dangerous territory that they were just in, right? They're nowhere near Old Man Willow's Patch anymore. Um, but of course, it's it's different. And and Erokeb, I agree, of course, to hobbits unfamiliar and weird aren't really that different, right? We've seen their reaction to things that are outside their experience. Um, uh, both things that are unfamiliar and things that are weird would be called queer by the hobbits, right? Strange, uh, weird. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Tony, the high and lonely cries are reminiscent of the Black Riders as well. Now, clearly, those cries are not reminding the hobbits of the Black Riders. Nothing that nothing in the hobbits' reactions or in the narrator's description makes us think directly of the Black Riders. But, but yeah, I mean, there is a, a kind of a distant echo of that. This idea of high, lonely cries uh, uh, on the wind uh, should remind us of the cries that they heard back in the marriage. Um my the thing that i am most uh most interested in um oh and uh cecilia i think it was cecilia who made this comment earlier it was either mary or cecilia i can't remember which now um was she was really interested in the anthrop the anthropomorphizing of the downs themselves right i mean if you noticed uh as she did the shoulders of the further hills and down their long limbs and up their smooth sides again, right? Like they are climbing on the bodies of giants, right? So the downs themselves, the hills themselves are being characterized as the body of presumably some, you know, recumbent giant lying there. Um, And that's a really striking image too. Uh, And especially that seems to be a very interesting, um, kind of perspective for hobbits to have, right? Hobbits feeling especially small uh, for their, you know, their, their, their first trip into this very new and strange territory, uh, you know, to feel like they're, they're climbing up and over the body of some monstrous giant, right? They feel especially, seem to feel especially small and insignificant and, uh, and uneasy, right? Um, You can see like their leeriness, I think of the, 
of the terrain itself, right? They're 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 nervous about the Barrow Downs. It's almost like that. It would seem as if they're 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 looking even at the hills themselves with some suspicion, right? Are these are these normal hills, right? Again, it's just a metaphor used to describe uh, to kind of convey calling, you know, saying the shoulders of the further hills gives us a visual picture of it as well, right? You know, this sort of rounded top like the like somebody's shoulder, um, but uh, you know, like a sort of a rounded ridge, right, like a shoulder. But still, it's. Um, it's still the 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 way that that metaphor gets extended, um, you know, three times, right? With the three different uh, body images there, um, uh, suggest that. Um, yet, fourth Dauntless, I was also thinking about Ender's dead giant as well from Ender's Game. Yeah, it's like that. Of course, there you have a a giant who was dead and becomes a part of the landscape, right? His corpse becomes the hills and the features uh, of the landscape. Um, But that's, of course, the problem with the Barrow Downs, right? Even if that were the case, even if this is, you know, the body of a long dead giant, which has become earth and a hill, right? Uh, The dead things at the Barrow Downs don't stay still. So again, you got to be uneasy, right? Not sure exactly what's going to happen there. Um, Yeah, yeah. And Erokeb, I agree. That's one of the other wonderful things about this description. Um, we do get this sense of the hobbits' uneasiness, their uncertainty, uh, their nervousness, uh, their reaction to the strangeness of things. And yet, Erokeb, as you say, the description of the Downs isn't really that strange. There's, we've, we've not seen anything weird, right? Nothing that we would call weird, anyway. It is a natural picture of wilderness, right? Quite a good description of... Uh, of this kind of of this kind of down, I love the silent except for the whisper of the air over the edges of the land. Uh, uh, again, the the I love the first of all the 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 way that that makes me that makes me. I was about to say picture, but that's not quite right. Right uh, to hear the whisper uh, of the wind, but of course, even more, it conveys the sense of the hobbit's perceptions. Right over the edges of the land as they're coming up the hill and it looks like the land just ends, right? So the wind isn't just coming over the top of the hill. It's coming around the edges of the land. You know, they're coming up to the, they're coming up to the brink every time they come up, uh, they come up the next hill. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, uh, 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 Steve, I agree. They are still less than 50 miles from Buckland. They're, they haven't gone that far geographically speaking. But of course, this is further than any of them have ever been before, right? So, I mean, this might as well be, um, you know, this went, this, I was, I was about to say it might as well be the moon, not quite the moon, right? Um, not quite that alien, but, you know, uh, it might as well be the other side of the world as far as they're concerned. Um, now, let's look at the yeah, Amethorn, I agree. 50 miles doesn't seem that far to us, but it's a good distance for hobbits. Um, yeah, not only that, it's a good distance for anybody who is not used to um, this kind of... To I mean, I remember when I was in college, I traveled around uh, the UK for a while. I spent about a month traveling around the UK. And uh, there was this one night that I... Um, um, I met this wonderful old couple in Salisbury, England, um, who had me home for tea. It was very lovely. And, 
and they were telling me about their family and everything. And I remember one of them told me you know, that the, the husband told me that their daughter had moved 50 miles away, which was making them kind of sad because they were afraid they wouldn't see that much of her again. And I was torn between wanting to quote Pride and Prejudice. What is 50 miles of good road? Um, and uh, and I was thinking, of course, of Gaffer Gamgee as well. Um, ne- never been so far myself. Um it you know it, the, the the way that they talked about it was like fifty miles. I mean, it was it was like they, they, you know, are we ever going to see our daughter again? And of course, and I, the, the the thing I was really struck by, of course, is the way that the geography is different, the way that distances are different. Um, America is just bigger, and we're used to traveling longer distances, right? Heck, I was—I've been reminded of this being from uh, being from New England up here in the northeast of America, and talking to folks down in Texas planning for Texmoot, you know, and what they consider to be local to Fort Worth, uh, where which is where Texmoot is, you know, to me would be a long distance, but not so much down in Texas. Um, so yeah, anyway, it's very—it's uh, fifty miles is a long distance. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, um, so, um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, but so yeah, it's, it, it would not at all be uncommon for people to be, uh, uh, st- staying at Tony, exactly as you say, um, uh, never, never traveling more than 20 miles away from, from your village is, would be, would have been totally standard, totally normal. Um, yeah, either uh, either in in you know like an, a nineteenth century culture or previous, or in New York City, as, as you say, Tony. Also true. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I remember uh, the look that when uh, my family was traveling around England back in two thousand twelve, uh, England and the UK. We were in. Wales. We we're in Bangor, Wales, and we we're going to go straight from there to the airport and fly home because to us it was, you know, again we're Americans. We're like, it's like a what a four-hour drive, no problem, right? And I remember that the B and B keeper out in Wales thought we were insane to just pop into London in the morning and fly out that afternoon. Um, but anyway, uh, okay. Second half of the description, though. Each time, okay, so it's growing hot. Each time they climbed a ridge, the breeze seemed to have grown less. When they caught a glimpse of the country westward, the distant forest seemed to be smoking, as if the fallen rain was steaming up again from leaf and root and mold. Uh, so remember the the mist, right? The mist around the Withywindle Valley. Um, and the associations that we've already had of mist with, well, like mystery, right? And, uh, and almost like magic, like the... Um, the 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 mist around the mythy the Withywindle Valley seems to have been almost a, a, a sort of a tangible symbol, right? A visual symbol uh, of the influence of Old Man Willow, right? And the uh, um, the perplexing, befuddling uh, call, you know, and manipulation um, of the trees there. Um, and then, so it's, this mist is rising again, this, uh, almost like smoke is rising off of, off of the, the, the forest, but they're safe. They're up on the hills, right? No problem. They can just see that from a distance. A shadow now lay round the edge of sight, 
a dark haze above which the upper sky was like a blue cap, hot and heavy. So on the one hand, the forest, you know, this mist rising from the forest, like, okay, so there's that sort of miasma of not only literal and visual humidity, right, but also, um, you know, of sort of magic and enchantment and, uh, you know, ensnarement in which they were caught before. At least they're safe up here on the downs, right, up here in the uh, the clean, fresh air and the silence, and and it's really nice, even if strange, right? Except the breeze is slowing down, the heat is increasing, and there's this shadow that lays around the edge of their sight. It is, when they were standing next to Goldberry, it was totally clear, right? It was as clean and far-seeing as it had been clouded before when they were on the Bald Hill, right? Now... That shadow, that mist, is gathering around the edge, the, the edges again. They can still kind of convince themselves that everything's fine, right? That they're not yet in any danger. Um, they're like in the midst of this sort of island. They're in the midst of this traveling little island, right? This this upper sky like the blue kids. So the sky's still blue above them, right? Um, no shadow has fallen over them. No fog has engulfed them. It's just that they can't see in the distance so clearly anymore. Um, uh, so I, to me, I think what we get here is we can see from a distance, right? They can see the forest. So now it's almost like having um, having seen, having, having listened to Tom Bombadil reveal the secrets of the trees, right? And who Old Man Willow is and how he operates. Now seeing it from a distance, it's like they can they can sort of see the operations of the forest in a sense, right? At least sort of symbolically, right? Um, what we are kind of getting, I think, here is this sort of implication. Things are starting to creep in around them now on the Barrow Downs. Um, but it's 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 still yet nothing unnatural, nothing freakish, nothing truly weird or alarming, but the first indications uh, that uh, things are going to close in around them a little bit. About midday, they came to a hill whose top was wide and flattened, like a shallow saucer with a green-mounded rim. Inside, there was no air stirring, and the, si- and the sky seemed near their heads. They rode across and looked northwards. Then their hearts rose, for it seemed plain that they had come further already than they had expected. Certainly the distances had now all become hazy and deceptive, but there could be no doubt that the downs were coming to an end. A long valley lay below them, winding away northwards, until it came to an opening between two steep shoulders. Beyond there seemed to be no more hills. Due north, they faintly glimpsed a long, dark line. "'That is a line of trees,' said Mary, "'and that must mark the road. All along it, for many leagues east of the bridge, there are trees growing. Some say they were planted in the old days.' Yes, hazy and deceptive, Steve. That's the, the, you know, the distances had all become hazy and deceptive. You hear almost the tone of rationalization in that line? Certainly the distances had now all become hazy and deceptive, but there could be no doubt, right? We can see the kind of wishful thinking as the hobbits are, seem to be resistant to the fact, to some extent, like they don't want to admit that danger is closing around them. Notice the similarity here. What position are they in here? It's just like the bald hill, right? In, with the bald hill, they were brought to the bald hill by the path, 
right? And from the bald hill, they could look around, and it was exactly... It was exactly like this. They saw this really hopeful view. Oh, look, all we have to do, we just have to go that way and we'll be out of the forest in no time, right? No worries, right? So they were given what looked like a reassuring and encouraging view, but of course it's right after they then submerge themselves back under the sea, into the sea of trees that they are, you know, diverted most forcibly and end up down in the Withywindle Valley. Um, but um, now... They're experiencing the same thing here on this uh, on this hilltop, right on the hilltop of the of the of the standing stones. Um, well, this flattened, shallow saucer hilltop that they're on, right? Um, and it looks like there's a clear path in front of them. No problem. They're doing great, um, and it's just going to be a fairly easy jaunt from here to reach their objective. No problem. Um, even in a even in a sense, I want to say that we should be wary of um, we should be wary of Mary's tone here. Remember, Mary was the leader, their fearless leader, who got them enmeshed in the old forest, right? And here, Mary is taking command again, right? Uh, that is a line of trees, and that must mark the road, he says confidently, as if he's ever seen it before. All along it, for many leagues east of the bridge, so he has, of course, he's been the other side of the bridge, right? He lives on the other side of the bridge, so he's been up to the road near the bridge, and he's, what, like, look down it, right? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's trees growing, right, for many leagues east of the bridge, right? Some say they were planted in the old days. Um, so here's Mary trying to assume his confident tone again, which again, I probably should, it would probably be unkind to Mary to suggest that that in itself is a, a danger sign, but still, right? It is what it is. Um, yeah. Katriana, I think you're, you're, uh, I think that you make a good point. She says, uh, I almost wonder how much is the gathering gloom uh, and how much uh, is it just them still not ha- still having no real concept of distances outside the world of the Shire? The one thing, the one hesitation that I would say there is don't forget that the th- at least three of them, maybe not Sam so much, but Frodo, Mary, and Pippin are experienced walkers. They go out on walking tours all the time, right? Now, in the Shire, right? And generally not too far from the places that they know. It's one thing uh, to go on a hobbit walking party uh, in familiar territory. And another thing, of course, to be wandering around here in the Barrow Downs. But they're not wholly inexperienced in, you know, making a, you know, finding a path and, and uh, uh, you know, orienteering and, and uh, uh, judging distances and things. Um, they have some experience with, again, not here, but they have some experience with that. And I, I would think that that would be the source of Mary's, of Mary's confidence. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Monica wants to, uh, wants to watch carefully over Mary now and see exactly at what point he finally grows a clue uh, that he knows very little about the world. Yeah, that, that will be an interesting thing to see. Um, Mary, of course, will cease to be in any way the leader fairly quickly, right? Um, this first leg was really his only, uh, uh, his only 
his only go at being the the leader and guide. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it it will be an interesting thing to watch the development of all of these characters as we go. Right, uh, it's one of the fun things about going at this pace. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. Um, yeah, that long valley, so tempting, right? Like, how could you miss it? A clear path out. No problems. Splendid, said Frodo. If we make as good going this afternoon as we have done this morning, we shall have left the downs before the sun sets and be jogging on in search of a camping place. But even as he spoke, he turned his glance eastwards, and he saw that on that side the hills were higher and looked down upon them, and all those hills were crowned with green mounds, and on some were standing stones, pointing upwards like jagged teeth out of green gums. So that's a little unsettling. But notice, right, notice that uh, those are to the east of them. So they are on the western side of the barrows still. Now, Tom said if you if you chance upon a barrow, pass it on the west side, right? So he's not just talking about, like, stay geographically to the west of where the downs, of where the barrows begin, which is where they are, right? But it's still interesting that they're they're standing in the warm sunlight looking at the at the barrows, right, from the west, which, again, you know, makes me remember Tom's injunction there. So it's a little bit disturbing, but um, but it's still comparatively safe, right? Um, but, uh, yes, the jagged teeth out of green gums. We had some questions about uh, Old Man Willow's motivations. What exactly was he trying to do? I mean, it didn't seem to be good. Right. I mean, he seemed to have, in some sense anyway, the destruction of the hobbits in mind. And we did a lot of debating about that at the time. Um, But uh, the first indicator that we get here of the attitude of the Barrow Downs to the hobbits is uh, an even creepier one, uh, but also a uh, uh, a a frankly predatory one. Right. uh, jagged teeth out of green gums. Um, I don't know about you, but of course I can't help but think of Bilbo's first riddle uh, in The Hobbit, right? The Thirty white horses on a red hill. First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. The neatness and orderliness of the the thirty white horses, right, on the hill. Um, and Gollum, of course, contrasting it with his own, right? But we has only six. Um and the horrible, nasty eating, you know, Gollum's cannibalistic eating, right, uh, is, uh, uh, is uh, you know, a, a really fit contrast there for Bilbo and Gollum. But it, we're sort of reminded here, right? And I agree, Valoria, the greenness of the gums is even grosser, right? It does seem like something putrid, something horribly rotten, uh, that its gums actually look green. And think about the sense of that, right? Of course they look green, right? They're covered with grass. That's nice. That's good. That's healthy and living and growing and lush and fertile and everything like that, right? Except even in the sunlight, even from here, that wonderful, positive, green, happy thing has been twisted and turned into, it's just by implication, right? Uh, into something hideous and horrible and foul and twisted and everything else. Um, so that's not great. 
that view was somehow disquieting. <laughs> somehow. I'm not sure how, but somehow that view is disquieting. So they turned off from the site and went down into the hollow circle. In the midst of it, there stood a single stone, standing tall under the sun above, and at this hour casting no shadow. It was shapeless and yet significant, like a landmark or a guarding finger, or more like a warning. But they were now hungry, and the sun was still at the fearless noon, so they set their backs against the east side of the stone. It was cool, as if the sun had no power to warm it, but at that time this seemed pleasant. There they took food and drink, and made as good a noon meal under the open sky as anyone could wish, for the food came from down under hill. Tom had provided them with plenty for the comfort of the day. Their ponies, unburdened, strayed upon the grass. Isn't this great? Right. What a charming bucolic scene this is. Right. This is really this is really wonderful. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all of you are hearing the many warning <laughs> signs. Right. Uh, seeing the warning flags that should be going up here in this uh, uh, in this in these paragraphs. Um JJ, as you said, uh, they sit on the east side of the stone, right? Like, they sit on the east side of the stone. Now, Tom said, pass Barrows by on the west side, right? Um, but still, yeah, and, and yeah, Brandon, they just let their ponies wander, right? Their ponies unburdened straight upon the grass. Now, that's not a big deal. Their ponies are sort of tame enough. They're not going to go very far and, and you know, will presumably come when called. I mean, I, I again, I, I, I assume they have a little more experience with ponies than I personally do. So, you know, they seem confident that they can. I don't think they're quite dumb enough to just, like, not know how to take care of ponies at all. So it's probably okay, right? Um but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Aruron is remembering, uh, the, the thing that Gandalf is going to say when he meets Frodo again, right? Talking about all of the absurd things that Frodo has done since he left home. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. This is clearly one of the absurd things that they do after they leave home. Um, yeah, yeah. Tony, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, Tony says after hearing Sparrow talk about her uh, uh, about her paper, he can't see a hyphenated word like noon meal without wondering what the original Westron word was. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, There are a lot of really interesting little cues that were given, right? Matt was um, pointing to one at this time, right? Um, they were hungry. Let's see. Uh, but, for this but is to me one of the biggest ones, right? Um, it was like a landmark or a guarding finger or more like a warning. But... They were now hungry, and the sun was still at the fearless noon, right? So they set their backs against the east side of the stone. Uh, it was cool, but at this time, that seemed pleasant, right? Yes, the 
uh, foreboding that it will not always seem pleasant to them. But at this time, it's going to seem pleasant. Um, Point is, notice how this is operating. Remember when they fell under the power of Old Man Willow, which they kind of did in two ways, one indirectly and one directly. Indirectly in the sense that they were getting you know, guided down to the... But that wasn't them being directly manipulated. Their minds weren't being manipulated by Old Man Willow, right? Um, It's just the rest of the trees were, so they were unable to... Even though they knew that in the... You know, eventually they knew they were going down to the Withy Window Valley, they couldn't help it. They physically couldn't get anywhere else. So in that... So first they get indirectly manipulated uh, by Old Man Willow. After that... They get directly manipulated when they, but that's not really until they're standing right underneath his branches, and then he begins to work on their minds directly and to sing his song of sleep, right? Um, and they, you know, it will be cool under the willow, less flies, right? Remember that. And then Frodo's desire to go bathe his with his uh, sort of treeish desire to go bathe his feet, right? Um, notice what happens here, right? Um, We were noticing in the previous passage how the shadow and haze is growing up around them. The heat is becoming more oppressive. The breeze, which was whispering before, right? It's been slowly decreasing until now it completely dies. There is no breeze at all in the little shallow bowl at the top of this hill, right? This, This sort of saucer. Um, there's no, there's no wind at all. And that seems a bad thing, right? Um, the increasingly oppressive heat, the no breeze and the haze and shadow around them, um, those seem to be the alarming signs, right? And notice the consequences. It's very hot now, right? And the stone seems cool. So they have taken refuge. They've taken a rest, Right, they feel, of course, encouraged by the uh, the view they've just seen from the hilltop, as we saw them be encouraged at the bald hill before. Um, so they've they're overconfident, like they were before. But they're also they seek out the coolness of the stone, um, because they're so because they're so hot, right, and it's so oppressive, right, um, and the the stone, the coolness of the stone seems pleasant. Right? Um, My question is, how is this there? Well, we'll come back to this question, but my question is, so what's happening to them exactly? What, to what extent are they being acted on? This isn't just them being absurd, right? They're they're being victimized here. They're being manipulated. They're being enchanted. Just as Old Man Willow's song was working on them before, something else is working on them now, right? Um, the narrator's about to make that a little bit clearer uh, than he is here in this paragraph, but I see that already being suggested. The memories of Tom Bombadil are uh, come in here very interestingly, Right? Um, they decide to sit and take a rest. They prop themselves up against uh, up against the stone, and they have a really lovely lunch, right? Noon meal, 
excuse me, um, under the open sky, right? Uh, as good a noon meal under the open sky as anyone could wish, right? They have just just the most delightful picnic there next to the standing stone. Why is it delightful? Because the food is from Tom Bombadil's house. Tom provided them with plenty for the comfort of the day. And this is why, by the way, the fact that they're just thinking about Tom and remembering Tom and enjoying uh, Tom's sort of remote hospitality here um, is one of the reasons why them letting their ponies stray upon the grass seems to me like the least foolish things of all of the things that they do. um, Because... Like that's what Tom Bombadil would do, right? Uh, so them sitting and having a and having a a, a, a wonderful uh, picnic lunch that they enjoy very much, while their ponies stray at their ease and enjoy the the wonderful grass. This all sounds like a very merry Tom Bombadilian gathering, right? It's all good. The problem is the context, right? Um, it's not that they've done anything wrong. It's not that there's any trouble with any of this. Um, but um, uh, but there's... The, the, the problem is this is not the place or time for this kind of merriment, right? For this kind of, this kind of, of, of picnic. Um, yes, Lincoln reminds us that Tom Bombadil has warned them of exactly this thing, right? Tom Bombadil said... Don't go messing with cold stone or old whites, right? Um, yeah, yeah, cold stone. They've been explicitly warned about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the stones, the old stones. Yeah. All right. Riding over the hills and eating their f- and and eating their fill. Yes, it, JJ points out the stone isn't cold. It's just pleasantly cool, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly, Jay. That's why, that's why I needn't worry about it. Anyway, riding over the hills and eating their fill, the warm sun and the scent of turf, lying a little too long, stretching out their legs and looking at the sky above their noses, these things are perhaps enough to explain what happened. However that may be, they woke suddenly and uncomfortably from a sleep they had never, uh, they had never meant to take. The standing stone was cold, and it cast a long, pale shadow that stretched eastward over them. The sun, a pale and watery yellow, was gleaming through the mist just above the west wall of the hollow in which they lay. North, south, and east, beyond the wall, the fog was thick, cold, and white. The air was silent, heavy and chill. Their ponies were standing crowded together with their heads down. The hobbits sprang to their feet in alarm and ran to the western rim, they found that they were upon an island in the fog. Even as they looked out in dismay towards the setting sun, it sank before their eyes into a white sea, and a cold gray shadow sprang up in the east behind. The fog rolled up to the walls and rose above them, and as it mounted, it bent over their heads until it became a roof. They were shut in a hall of mist, whose central pillar was a standing stone. That image is one of my favorites. Uh, in uh, this whole group of chapters here. The fog rolled up to the walls and rose above them, and as it mounted, it bent over their heads until it became a roof. They were shut in a hall of mist, whose central pillar was a standing stone. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, they're on an island now. And now you'll remember, Matt, you were posting on this on the discussion board. Uh, it's well remembered. Of course, this is the second such island they've been on, right? Uh, the Bald Hill was also like an island in a sea of trees. And we remember the moment when they submerged themselves again, right? When they walked down the far side of the hill and went underwater again, went under uh, and began to move through the uh, you know the ocean bottom right there the 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 aquatic world of the forest this alien territory uh, which is not their their own native element right that was the so, sort of sense that we got as they submerged themselves in the sea of trees here they're again on an island in a sea except this time it's a sea of fog and this time they don't go down into it it comes up and overwhelms them. Right, they're just standing there as the fog closes around them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice how this is—we've already seen this foreshadowed, right? How the mist and shadow was—it was—it's. It, this has been very subtle as it's been growing, right? It just starts out with that—that that ring that just kind of makes the distance hazy around them, super clear when they're with Goldberry. And as the day progresses, it becomes more hazy around them, hotter and hazier. And then the fog creeps in around them and then surrounds them. And they're st it's still, you know, st still clear where they are, right? Uh, they are, they are, they are, they become engulfed. It's, it makes a roof over their head. That sense of it's making a roof over their head, right? Again, like they, uh, the air is still clear, on top of their little hill, in their little bowl. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Matt, you're right. Tom Bombadil will say, will will compare his saving them to to somebody being saved from from drowning. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, J.J. thinks that something about the fog and the stone just comes across as far more threatening than the trees of the old forest. Well, you know, J.J., I, I agree with you. And I think there are a couple things that make that. Again, first of all, it's more aggressive, right? The trees were drawing them in, right? Hey, here's a nice path. Don't you want to follow this path, right? Um, and, uh, and, and then eventually, like, <clears throat> even until they were under Old Man Will, they had no idea what's going on. To one, in, in one sense, I think, that, um, in one sense, one of the differences here, JJ, I think, is that we know more, and they know more, than they did before, right? Remember, Mary was uncertain as to whether or not the trees actually shifted. Um, there was sort of a question. Are, we're not just being paranoid, right? Are these trees out to get us? Now we know, yeah, uh-huh, those trees were out to get him, absolutely. We still Man Willow was out to get him, and all the other trees are under his dominion, right? So, um, so yep, yep, no, the trees were totally out to get them. It wasn't their imagination. Now we know that, right? Here, it now, you know, before, it seemed far-fetched that they might be under the sort of enchanted influence of something that's trying to kill them. Now, yeah, mm-hmm, we're pretty much right there. So when this fog is closing in around them, there's no maybe this is a symbol for something. Like, it's clear, right? There is a malevolent will that is closing in around them, and it's it's very plain that the fog is 
probably literally, physically, its instrument, right? Um, not only its symbol, but also literally its instrument. Um, and uh, and yeah, Tony, I agree. Another major difference is that we were we had before hobbits versus trees. Remember, even back to the bonfire glade and everything, that was competition between two living species, right? Who can't always get along, right? You know, the farmers and the forests can't be friends. And we talked about that. Like, that's just that's um, uh, that's that's a that's a natural conflict between two living creatures whose interests are not the same. This is different, right? This is a conflict between the living and the dead. Um, remember, and it's it's the dead which tw- remember even the greenness of the downs, right? The greenness of those distant hills, um, which is green with life, right? And yet it becomes in its way a sign of death and putrefaction. And yes, I agree, uh, Corey, it also does seem especially spooky because it's happened before, exactly. The fact that this this same kind of scenario is happening again makes it seem... Because again, it's like, now we know, right? And they know too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you, Lady Shmevulak, for getting my musical theater reference. Um uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I agree, Erokeb, it's not death per se, um, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's a twisted death. I, 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 I do agree. Um, yes, it's the fact that the dead are uneasy, right? That the dead are, uh, uh, the, the dead may stir and rise uh, that of course makes the Barrow Downs as creepy as they are but notice another thing again and, and here I come back in a sense to the point that um, the point that I was making about the parallels right about how we can see um, knowing in a sense having been here before having gone through something like this before how it feels different uh, the second time so notice for instance um, the shadow, right? As the sun sets. First, the long pale shadow of the standing stone is now stretching out eastwards. So it was like a warning finger, right? And now, as the sun is setting, that warning finger is pointing to the east, right at those disturbing hills with the standing stones and the broken teeth on, you know, the jagged teeth on green gums. It's pointing right out towards them and, and to the east. What's it pointing at, right? What is the shadow of the standing stone pointing? Like what else is it pointing to? Um, even as they looked out in dismay toward the setting sun, it sank before their eyes into a white sea and a cold gray shadow sprang up in the east behind. On the one hand, this is just a description of sunset, right? Sunset on a particularly foggy evening. Right, so yeah, as soon as the sun drops down into the fog from their vantage point on top of the hill, then the sky, and especially the sky in the east on the opposite on the opposite horizon from the sun, is going to suddenly seem much darker. But of course, in this context, both contexts, both the Barrow Downs context uh, and the post Old Forest context, this is alarming. Right on a Barrows Down context, because a cold gray shadow springing up in the east is a bad sign. Right, that's that's not good, uh, and especially since remember Tom Bombadil suggested that it was 
uh, it was shadows from the east that came to the barrows and and filled them with dread in the first place, right? Um, so that's uh, that's 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 not a good sign, right? It is like this, you know, the uh, the evil spirits that have infested uh, or invested even uh, the barrow downs are uh, are are like rising up in almost visible form, right? So that's a bad sign. But also, again. They didn't know about Old Man Willow, right? They didn't know that there was a malevolent creature at the center of the old forest who was actually luring them in and wanting to destroy them. They thought they were just getting lost and that the trees were being... Even once they believed that the trees were malevolent and could move, it was still a sort of a tree-ish malevolence, right? They didn't, they didn't actually seem to attribute strategy to the trees or understand, again, that there was a central will guiding them. Right. Um, and then, um, but now this shadow that the barrow downs are over there to the east and, uh, uh, and then this, this, so that, that, that vision, that, uh, that sense of a, of a shadow, a cold gray shadow springing up in the east. Again, a reminder, uh, proof, uh, you know, whatever, how, however you want to say it, this fog is not just a natural fog. They are under attack right now, right? As they had been in the old forest, but they didn't know it. Now they have reason, several reasons to suspect it, uh, and they can, and they can see it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, should we make anything of the capitalization of East, Tony asks? Okay, here's a project. Somebody do some work on that. Focus on East and West, right? Because we know East and West have really important associations, um, you know, with Mordor and Valinor. So somebody, somebody do, some, do some searching. We've got a digital text. This is easy enough to do, right? I mean, look just in this passage. North, South, and East, right, is not capitalized up here. Um... East is capitalized down here. I want to figure out... Um, <laughs> sorry. I love that Tom Hillman is pointing out how what they're seeing as, as the sun setting is. They're seeing a near green country under a swift sunset. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but anyway, okay, so project. Project. Tell me. Find, look and see if there's a pattern. Um, when is East and West not capitalized, and when is it capitalized? Um, it looks inconsistent at first glance. I mean, just reading through, it seems like sometimes it's capitalized and sometimes it's not, but I can't be sure that it's significant. Let's see if there's a, a pattern there. My experience with this is that when I've looked closely, I've generally found patterns. Um, there have been several occasions on which a particular usage like this of Tolkien, whether it be hyphenization or capitalization um, or pronoun usage even, uh, that somebody will say um, Tolkien is inconsistent about this. Um, and I've found that when you look carefully, actually, it turns out to be a little bit less inconsistent. Um, even, uh, even Christopher 
has made mistakes about this. And Sparrow Alden again um, caught him at it. This is the first paper I ever heard from Sparrow. She presented a paper on this at Mythmoot 2 uh, several years back. Uh, wonderful, wonderful paper on uh, uh, the uh, the the de- debate of Finrod and Andreth, the Athrobeth, uh, from Morgoth's ring. Um, Christopher Tolkien in his commentary says, points out that his dad is inconsistent in using you versus thee and thou as pronouns uh, in that story. And uh, Sparrow went through and noticed, pointed out, that actually it's not inconsistent. It's quite deliberate. It's the two characters shifting back and forth between formal language and and informal, friendly language. Uh, and she argues, I think very convincingly, that he's very deliberate in his choice of you versus thee or thou in that. Uh, and although Christopher seems to have missed it, he seems to have missed the significance of the shifts there. Um, it does map really well uh, onto that. Um, same thing here. And, so, and, and again, Sparrow was also the one who, for me, solved the, the, the hyphenization, the hyphenation problem. Um, she's great at noticing things like this and, and, uh, and perceiving the patterns in it. Somebody look this up. This would be an awesome paper topic, Brandon. It's exactly what I was thinking. This would be a great presentation to make at a regional moot or at myth moot. Um, but um, uh, so anyway, somebody look this up. East and West. Focus on East and West. Um, when is it capitalized? When is it not capitalized? Can, can, can we put him into categories, maybe? Are there like certain occasions when he always doesn't capitalize it? Other occasions when he always does and some when he seems to or, or, or not, right? Can we, can we sort of uh, figure that out? So yeah, let's, um, let's, let's I, so I, I don't have a clear answer to that, but let's make this happen. Um, okay. Let's keep going. They felt as if a trap was closing about them, but they did not quite lose heart. They still remembered the hopeful view they had had of the line of the road ahead, and they still knew in which direction it lay. In any case, they now had so great a dislike for that hollow place about the stone that no thought of remaining there was in their minds. They packed up as quickly as their chilled fingers would work. There is that clear sense now that this was a trap all along. Right. In which case, so how did the trap work? Were they put to sleep? Old Man Willow was singing a sleep song, right? Um, such that Sam twigged to it, right? Uh, that's kind of a funny word to use in the Old Man Willow context, but right, uh, you know, he thought the strange sleepiness seemed uncanny. None of them think that the sleepiness seems uncanny. The narrator kind of toys with it, right? Perhaps it could be explained by natural phenomena, right? Big lunch, lying around for a little bit, right? Maybe these are enough to explain what happened. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, the implication, the fact that he points it out suggests that it's not enough to explain. So presumably, they were put to sleep. They are under the influence of someone or something here. But it's an influence which is more subtle than Old Man Willows, right? Because even Sam, right, uh, succumbs. Um yeah. Matt, you're right. So, by the way, Matt uh, has a friendly addition there. He says that to compare North and South uh, with sm- small letters and capital letters might be a good kind of control group, since North and South are less significant concepts uh, in The Lord of the Rings than East and West are. So it might be interesting to see that, too. I agree. Do all four of them. Um, 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, they had now so great a dislike for that hollow place about the stone that no thought of remaining there was in their minds. Um, they're now thoroughly creeped out by the place where they were having such a lovely picnic before. The suggestion, the implication uh, to me certainly is that their comfort, their happiness before was an illusion, right? They were suckered before um, into being calm and happy where they shouldn't have been calm and happy, in fact. Um, and yeah, um, old Toby uh, points out that after the relative safety of Tom's house, they're off their guard. But no, And notice also, old Toby, right, that they're like bringing some of the merriment of Tom Bombadil with them. It's Tom's food that they're eating, right? And they're thinking about down under hill. Um, and it's almost like that's one of the things that gets them in trouble, acting like they're still in the house of Tom Bombadil when they're not in the house of Tom Bombadil, right? They don't have Bombadil's authority. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Lincoln points out it's just like the relative safety of Crick Hollow going into the old forest. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, oh, lost my train of thought. There's another thing I was going to say. Oh yeah, sorry. No, Brandon, I was gonna, I was gonna uh, mention your comment. Um, Brandon points out they should really call for Tom Bombadil right now, right? Um, it is really a great question. What makes them not do that? Why don't they call for Tom Bombadil right now? Because I mean, come on, this isn't just that they fell asleep and lost their way, right? There is something happening here. They have every reason to think that they are under attack right now. They haven't lost hope completely because they remember the way about them, right? They felt, they feel like a trap is closing about them, but what, they're not fully trapped yet, and so they're they're fine, they're okay, right? They're not going to, um, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, Valori says, you know, the same reason any kid doesn't want to call for mom when they're caught doing something stupid. Maybe they just feel chagrined about falling asleep, right, and don't want to admit it to Tom, um, uh, yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, in which case that's already a, a fairly foolish thing that they're doing. Um, that ultimately it's, it's pride. Yeah, Tony, it's just exactly the sentence I was about to finish there. Yeah, it's, it's, there's pride involved there, right? They don't want to admit that they need help immediately, that they've already screwed it up. Um, Soon they were leading their ponies in single file over the rim and down the long northward slope of the hill, down into a foggy sea. As they went down, the mist became colder and damper, and their hair hung lank and dripping on their foreheads. When they had reached the bottom, it was so chill that they halted and got out cloaks and hoods, which soon became bedewed with gray drops. Then, mounting their ponies, they went slowly on again, feeling their way by the rise and fall of the ground. They were steering, as well as they could guess, for the gate-like opening at the far northward end of the long valley which they had seen in the morning. Once they were through the gap, 
They had only to keep on in anything like a straight line, and they were bound in the end to strike the road. Their thoughts did not go beyond that, except for a vague hope that perhaps away beyond the downs there might be no fog. Notice that one of the things that really strikes me about this is, on the, you know, we were talking about how they've been through this before, in a sense, right? They were trapped before by Old Man Willow. Notice that they don't seem to be more on their guard, or if they are, they don't want to admit it, right? They're, they're, they seem to be really resistant to even thinking about this, in a sense. See what I mean? I mean, like, their thoughts do not go beyond that, except for the vague hope that perhaps away beyond the downs there might be no fog. Really? Like, do you really think this fog is a natural fog? And that you're just kind of hoping you can find your way out of the natural fog? That's that's your thought right here? Not like we're under attack and we might need help. Right? They... they there's a sense in which they seem more sensitive to this than they were before, but they still seem to be, they still seem to be, what, f- resistant to the idea? Um, going back to the fog for a second, that wonderful image of of this hall made out of fog whose central pillar was a standing stone. Um, on the one hand, that might sound like just sort of a description of being in the fog, right? Because, of course, like, usually in the fog around you, uh, you know, like, when you're in fog, you can see still around you, right? But, uh, um, so it may be, you know, in that sense, right? Like, the, the the visibility is reduced by the fog, right? But they can still see to the edges of the hills. So that creates the, the sort of visual sense, right, that they are in this little one dome of, of and then everything else is white all around them. Um but that is not the image that we get, and, and we can tell, because when they go down the side, they enter the fog, like they plunge into the fog, like plunging into the sea, like going down beneath the sea of trees off the bald hill, and and they, they experience immediate physical effects of that, right? Um, as they're going down into the foggy sea, it's wet like a sea. Um, the mist becomes colder and damper, and their, their hair is, is, is getting wet, from passing into the fog, they were, they were not in fog on top of the hill. It's not just that they could see through it there. They were not in fog. They were surrounded on all sides, including the top, with fog. And then they actually enter the fog. And as soon as they do, it starts to form, you know, they, they, they sort of get water droplets on their, on their clothes and, and cloaks and, and in their hair. Um, so there's the physiological cues suggest, no, they were actually in this little envelope of clean air surrounded by fog on all sides. That doesn't happen. That's not normal. Um, and yet uh, they still seem to think that they can just walk out of it. It is like a snow globe made of fog, Druid's fire. It's like the opposite of a, it's like a reverse snow globe, right? Um, exactly. Um Yeah, so Lincoln and Brandon are suggesting that they're still under the influence of the Downs. But see, that's what I'm wondering. Like, my question is, what can we conclude about that here? What in what? Who's influencing them? We don't really know. Um, how are they being influenced? We knew how Old Man Willow was influenced. We didn't know what his plan was, but we knew what he was doing. Right, first he was getting them 
to him, right? He was bringing them to the, down to the withy window and then ultimately under his branches. And then he sang his song of sleep and got them to lean against the trunk or go down by the water. And then he's going to proceed to do whatever he would have proceeded to do, kill them, presumably. Um, what's the plan? How are they being influenced here? Again, in the, in the old force, they didn't seem to be influenced until Old Man Willow started singing his sleep song, right? Is their judgment being impaired? Um, you know, I don't know. And uh, Tim, uh, Tim is making a great point here. Notice the lack of dialogue, right? Where's the snappy, why aren't we singing fog songs like Frodo tried to sing a tree song? Remember the sort of song battle that that Frodo and the forest were having? Nobody's even trying that. No one's going to sing a song? They're not even talking. They're not even joking. Where's the hobbitry? Tim, that's a great point. You know, no dialogue in this section, and it certainly does, as Tarloniel suggests, add to the silent and chilled atmosphere of uh, of the scene, but it also, I think, suggests something to us about the Hobbit's state of mind, right? They, the the sort of oppression of the forest seems to be fairly heavy on uh, on them here. Um, yeah, Tom is pointing out the lines that talk about their thoughts not going beyond this plan and the vague hope, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so Lincoln suggests the, the Barrow plan. Step one, trap the hobbits until dark by the cool stone, right? So the the sleep that they fell under, right, um, seems to be step one, right? Put them to sleep until dark. So that seems to have been executed. And then lead two, step two, lead them into the waiting arms of the Barrow Whites. Yes. Yes. Um... at least confound them and prevent them from being able to escape, right? Um, yes. Uh, Tora Marthen says, the dead don't speak, and this is a place of the dead. I agree. It's not at all, of course, I'm not suggesting that it's unfitting that they don't, or, like, shocking that they don't speak. I just think it's significant that they don't speak. And it's also unlike them, not to speak. We saw even in the old forest. Remember Pippin and Mary, right? It hasn't taken you long to lose us, right? All the, I mean, there was banter in the old forest. Right up to old man Willow, there was banter, right? There's no banter here. The fact that we're not bantering, I think, is a bad sign. Totally understandable. Absolutely fits the environment, but I think it fits it too well. That's the point, is that this is they're being fitted to the environment, Um they're not standing out from it in the way that normally they would, right? Um, so does this suggest, and this is sort of what I'm trying to figure out, does this suggest a broader kind of, uh, of, uh, of influence, right, of enchantment on the part of the Downs? Um, are they being controlled or manipulated or even dominated, in a sense, um, in a subtler way. It certainly seems subtler. Again, the sleep is the same, but more subtle than it was with Old Man Willow. 
Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, well, see, but Katriana, I'm not sure. Katriana says, you know, stuff got real and they know this isn't the time for jokes. But that's kind of exactly the time for jokes, actually. Right? They've been joking in dangerous times before. Um, uh, think of even the way that Frodo and Sam talk to each other while they're, like, you know, looking at Old Man Willow swallowing Merry and Pippin. Right? You know, even the kind of... Um, you know, the, the, the tone that they, you know, even Sam's like, I'll have that tree down if I have to gnaw it. Right. They, they talk, right. They talk and they even talk again. It's not flippant. It's not, um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I guess I, I think it's significant that they're not speaking. Um, I think that the, uh, the cold, Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.